0: We are back in Luke this morning, and uh, if you are a little bit confused about where we are and you were here last week and you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, last week we ended in chapter 19, verse 27, and now we're skipping over 28 through 44 and we're picking up in verse 45, what happened? Is it we just don't like what's in verses 28 through 44? Well, no, that's not it at all. If you remember back several weeks ago, in fact, the Sunday before Resurrection Sunday, which is often called Palm Sunday, I actually preached chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. And you remember at that time I said, we're going to jump ahead a little bit in Luke because I want to cover kind of the theme and the text of Palm Sunday on Palm Sunday. And so we did that, and then we went back after Resurrection Sunday to where we were in Luke, and we have now caught back up. So if you are a type A person, you are thrilled because we finally are back in the proper order of things, which is where we find ourselves this morning. All of this is important, finding our place in the Gospel of Luke, because it's it's. Beneficial for us to see that Jesus is now in the city of Jerusalem. His three-year public ministry is coming to a close very soon. And in fact, in less than a week's time, he will surrender his life to be arrested and tortured and executed for the sin of the world. And Jesus, all the way back from Luke chapter 9, has set his face to go towards Jerusalem. Not just because Jerusalem has some sort of value symbolically, it it does, but it's not so much just the city that Jesus is heading towards, but it's all the things that Jerusalem represents. Jesus came into our world to seek and to save the lost, and he came on a mission to give his life as a ransom For many. And that ransom would be paid, that ransom would be accomplished as Jesus suffered and died on the cross and rose from the dead. And that would take place in and around the city of Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem has significance. If this were a movie. There would be sort of a a, maybe a a drumbeat that would have started all the way back in chapter 9, almost imperceptibly at first, and then getting louder and louder, maybe a little bit faster and faster. There would be maybe music which is cluing us in to the fact that something very important is about to take place. It would be heightening our senses. As Jesus now has some of his most clear, most direct sometimes even the harshest criticism towards those who do not believe and those who have led the people astray, all of that's contained, most of that's contained at least here as Jesus is preparing to go to the cross. That's why Jerusalem here is so significant There's the pressure-packed events that unfold in these next few chapters as Jesus and the religious leaders kind of spar. By now, the hatred of the religious leaders has has reached a a critical state, and yet Jesus remains committed to the mission of the Father. We're going to see that on display here in our text So if you looked at the text, and even as the text was read, you probably noticed that your Bible divides this up into three different sections, verses 45 through 48 of chapter 19, then chapter 20, verses 1 through 8, and then chapter 20, verses 9 through 18. Uh, Those are three different sections, or in, in the world of biblical studies, they're called pericopes. So these are three different pericopes. Go ahead and say that with me, pericope. All right, it's your vocab word for the week. If you're ever on Jeopardy and they ask this kind of question, you know the answer. A section like this in the Bible, a subsection, is called a pericope. And so there are three different kind of pericopes or sections here. We're going to look at them one at a time. But let me just share kind of the reason I'm, I'm preaching this all in one text. It's not because we're in a hurry to finish Luke. <laughs> but it's because all three of these point to the identity and the work and the authority of Jesus Christ. And so all of these could be preached individually. Uh, as you know, I, I don't struggle with the temptation to take it slowly. And so we could go very slowly through this. But I think there's significance in pulling all three of these together and highlighting three different aspects about Jesus' identity, his authority, and his purity. So that's what we want to do this morning. So if you're taking notes... Uh, Be advised, there will be nothing on the screen this morning, Uh, so you're going to have to listen and just jot it down old-fashioned. We're going to kind of work through the text this morning using three kind of key words that we're going to look at. The first is purity. The second is authority. And the third is identity. Purity, authority, and identity. Let's look at purity first. Verse 45, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. So Jesus has just entered into Jerusalem not long ago and one of the first things that he does is to go into the temple. Just for, for some background purposes, the temple was God's design. It was a place whereby the people of God might make sacrifices to him whereby they might worship him. It was the place where God's presence symbolically dwelt among his people and it was to be a holy place. And yet, tragically, driven by pragmatism, the temple had not become a sacred place of worship, but it had become a place of of essentially entertainment. People would go to the temple not to worship and pray, but to buy and sell. It was a place of commerce. They used it for their own purposes instead of the purposes of God. So... Not unlike churches, even today, that sacrifice the weightiness of God's glory for entertainment or spiritual TED Talks or fluff. The Jews had traded the weightiness of God's glory for a combination of what we might call like a circus and flea market sort of atmosphere. And this is no small thing. What was at stake was the purity of worship for the people of God. Like In their attempt to attract, maybe, or to provide amenities or to give options or to give people a place to shop, they had completely abandoned the fact that the temple is actually God's idea. The temple was a place for God's glory and for his honor and for the good and the blessing of his people. And so the purity of God in the eyes of the people is what was at stake, which is why Jesus, the son of God, doesn't come in soft here. Or if you're like in old school wrestling, like Jesus comes off the top rope here at those who would corrupt the use of the temple of God. Luke here tells us that Jesus drove out those who sold. Matthew helps us out by adding in in Matthew 21 that Jesus actually overturned the tables of the money changers The bankers in the temple. Mark adds as well that Jesus wouldn't let anyone carry anything through the temple. And If you're like, that seems really weird. He wouldn't allow anyone to carry. It's likely because the temple, which was centrally located in the city was being used as kind of a cut through. So as people had to, had to get things, or maybe they purchased things, or went to the shopping mall of the temple, and then they would carry things through, or maybe they were helping a buddy move, and so like, well, we don't have to go all the way around. The temple had so lost its sacredness, and its reverence, and its holiness, And likewise, the people had so significantly lost the sacredness and reverence and holiness that they should rightly have towards God that they were willing to just kind of use the temple as a cut through, as a pass through. So you can imagine, maybe there were a few devout people who had gone to the temple to pray or to worship, and they're being drowned out and distracted and overrun by people who are just there for all kinds of personal, pragmatic reasons. Now think for a minute. Get this mental image in your head. We don't know how many people are in the temple at this time. There were likely lots of people. And Jesus is one man. And yet Jesus goes into the temple and he overturns the tables. Likely the money changers are not thinking, oh, that's interesting. What are you doing now? Jesus prevents anyone from carrying anything through the temple, and he drives out everyone other than possibly those who were there for prayer. Now, This is not the image or the picture that we oftentimes get if you just survey the landscape of North American evangelicalism, of the soft, mild, soft-spoken Jesus who goes around kind of throwing out platitudes, surely, surely, I say to you, Right? It's Rambo Jesus, right? (laughs) Only without sin and without ungodliness. Like he has a righteous zeal for the things of God. He does not take kindly to his creation, taking lightly of him, especially when it comes to worship. And yet that had been completely lost. Friends, this is one of the reasons, in fact, why when we gather as a church for worship through the finished work of Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us when new covenant Christians, but there still ought to be a weightiness that marks our worship of God together. Now, to be clear, it should be a weighty joy because we have been rescued. Like We have been pulled out of the fire. We've been given new life. We have been adopted into a new family. But friends, God is the creator God who is holy. And hell is real. And our rescue comes at the great expense of the very death of the Son of God. And it concerns me, to be honest, as... I look around at evangelicalism sometimes, not always certainly, but I see the almost just flippant way people of God gather together for worship, and the insatiable desire sometimes for entertainment and humor, just sort of a glib sort of, hey, y'all, let's hang out. When we are gathering at the command of the God of the universe who has called his people to regularly gather together to bow down before him who is holy and we come not as an interruption of our week to worship as though this were somehow something new that that God was not receiving glory and honor and praise. But we come to join in, as we sang a little bit ago, to join the song that has continued from ages past and will continue to ages into the future for all eternity. Around the throne of God, God is being worshipped. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole world, the earth, the creation, the cosmos, all things are filled with his glory. And that, that noise, the echo of that song and that melody reverberates throughout all time. And so what we do when we come together on the Lord's Day and we gather together regularly for worship is not starting something new. We're just merging in with a worship that's already been going on and will continue throughout all time as we gather around the throne symbolically. As we come together to declare the holiness and the goodness and the grace and the kindness and the mercy and the love of our creator God, there should be a weighty, joy that marks the gathering of God's people for worship and it should be seen in the songs that we sing which declare the glorious truths of who God is and what he has done not only as we declare those to God but as we remind one another of that as we remind our own soul right bless the Lord oh my soul (laughs) the psalmist is reminding his soul yeah you need to bless the Lord We do that as we sing to the Lord with gravity and gladness. We don't have screaming guitar solos, right? Matt dancing around the stage. He has the skill for that. (laughs) But he reigns it in because there is a weightiness. This is not about the musicians, it's not about the person preaching, it's not about the people up front. It's about the reflection to the God who is ruling and reigning, the, the real head of the church, Jesus Christ, that we have come to worship. It's why we read scripture so much when we gather together. Some of you are newer and you're telling your friends that invited, you're like, man, y'all at CCF read a lot of scripture. It's because it's continually realigning our hearts, which are so prone to wander. We want to hear God speak. And the clearest way we hear God speak is through his word. That's why we pray. Why we read scripture even before we pray oftentimes as Pastor Josh did this morning. We we pray to him. We come to him. We lift our needs to him. We're reminded yet again that this is not a performance. And praying prayers that lift our needs to the Lord and confess our love to the Lord, not, not as a transition, but actually stopping And quieting our hearts and spending time in prayer reminds us that there is a reason that we are here that has nothing to do with the people who are up here. It has everything to do with our God and our Redeemer and His precious Holy Spirit. That's why we pray that our preaching, no matter who stands behind the pulpit, is marked by a centrality of the word of God, by a gravity and a joy as we herald this good news of God, as we, as we declare and celebrate and remember and teach, yes, the God of the universe has spoken. Come and listen. And so there is a purity Jesus is doing here as he purifies the temple but there's something else going on here Jesus yes is cleansing the temple but he will ultimately fulfill it because Jesus we know will be the temple and for those of us living now in 2023 we look back and we know that Jesus is the temple so, for example, in John chapter 2, 19, you might remember this, Jesus is gathered together with some of the Pharisees, and he tells the Pharisees as they're gathered in the temple complex, destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it or raise it up again in three days. And the Jews around him look at him like he's absolutely lost his mind. Like it has taken 46 years, they say, to build this temple, and you... You may be a great carpenter and all, but you're going to rebuild this in three days? And John, as the narrator, helpfully steps in and tells us the temple that Jesus is talking about is his body. He would be crushed. He would be destroyed. He would be killed. And three days later, the Father would raise him from the dead. You see, this... The temple, this place where sacrifices were repeatedly made, would be replaced by Jesus, the once and for all sacrifice for sin. And the temple, this place where God dwelled among his people, would be replaced by Emmanuel, God with us, the one who came to bring all who believe, not only near to God, but to give us his spirit to live in us. You see, Jesus isn't just cleaning house. Jesus is demonstrating how the temple itself, as a physical structure, could never be the final remedy for sin. Only Jesus was completely pure. Only Jesus could be the perfect sacrifice for sin. Only Jesus could satisfy the penalty of sin, which we owed. It's the spotless, perfect, pure Lamb of God. That's purity. And that brings us then to the second section. And our second word, which is authority. Verse 1 of chapter 20. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and they said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things. Or who is it that gave you this authority? And he answered them, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John... From heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, Well, if we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from, and Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So the gospel of Luke begins with Jesus asking questions in the temple, and now here, near the end of his public ministry, he's again teaching in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders are not having it. By now, they are committed opponents of Jesus, and so they seize on this as an opportunity to ask a question, to try to trap Jesus. And their question is about the authority that Jesus has, the authority that he has to teach to do miracles, maybe to cleanse the temple. And they don't really want to know the answer. Once again, their purpose is to discredit Jesus. Because he didn't train like other rabbis did of that day, he didn't go through the same sort of internship, residency, journeyman process. They're wanting to know, where did you get your authority? Jesus responds with his own question. And he asked them, John's baptism or John's ministry as a whole, was it from God or did he preach and teach of his own authority? Was he speaking on behalf of God as the messenger of God or was was he just another man, just a nice teacher who was out in the wilderness somewhere? You might remember that John the Baptist was Jesus' forerunner. He was the one promised in the closing verses of Malachi, so as the curtain goes down in the Old Testament. There was a prophecy about the prophet to come who would pave the way for the deliverer, for the Messiah. And then even before John the Baptist was born, you remember in Luke chapter 1, an angel came to Zechariah, John's dad, to tell, to tell him that this son to be born to him, John, would be the one who would be this prophetic individual who would pave the way for the Messiah who would come. And then later Jesus began his earthly ministry by coming to John the Baptist to be baptized by him. And he said he needed to be baptized by John to fulfill all righteousness. And Jesus' baptism wouldn't just fulfill prophecies, but it would be an occasion for the authority of Jesus to be seen as the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descended like a dove on him. So Jesus' authority is tied up with John's identity. But the scribes and the chief priests and the teachers completely miss that. They don't believe that John is a spokesman for God. And so they have to huddle up for a minute. You can imagine what this must have looked like. Like, uh, yeah, give us a moment, please. We we need to have a recess. And so they go out and they kind of talk among themselves and they think, like, we're in a really Bad fix right now because if we say that John was actually a messenger from God, he came from God, he spoke for God, then Jesus will likely say, why didn't you believe him? But if we say he's just a man, then the crowd is going to stone us because they all believe that he is actually from God. Interesting that in both chapter 19, verse 48... And here in chapter 20, verse 6, the crowd actually gets right what the religious teachers got so wrong. We don't have time to to dive into that. So they respond, we don't know by what authority John taught. And their ignorance here shows us that then they have no basis to judge Jesus' ministry. Like, if they don't know whether John the Baptist was from God or not, how in the world can they expect to know if Jesus was from God or not? And that's what Jesus is highlighting here. So he replies, and I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do these things either. But this question about authority is an important one. In fact, this is a question that we as Christians, even 2,000 years later, need to settle in our minds if we're going to find true peace and contentment in the Christian life. And there are not many more fundamental questions than who is Jesus and what authority does he have? In fact, the authority question really reveals what we believe about Jesus' identity. If we believe that Jesus is Lord, he is the Son of God, then we will submit to his rightful authority. Not perfectly. Not always, but that will be our aim. The general trajectory of our life is I want to honor the Lord because Jesus is Lord, which means he has the right to tell me in his word what I ought to do and how I ought to act and how I ought to live and to determine my goals and my priorities and my dreams and my ambitions. He has the right to tell me who I am in him. So authority is really important. We see the scribes and the chief priests and the elders rejecting Jesus' authority. And we're about to find out just how tragic that truly is here in our third section. This brings us to our third word, which is identity. We've looked at purity, we've looked at authority. The third word this morning is identity. And it's wrapped up around this parable, if your Bible's like mine, the parable of the wicked tenets. If you are someone who writes in the margins of your Bible, I want to offer a, a, an optional other subheading. The subheadings are not inspired, so there's no heretical work happening here. Philip Ryken calls this, and I, I like this even better, the murder of the owner's son. Because I think that captures maybe even more clearly what's going on here. Look at verse 9. Jesus began to tell the para- or to tell the people a parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed, and he sent another servant, but they also beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, this one they wounded and cast out. Let's just pause there for a moment. As a reminder, a parable is a story with an eternal truth. As we so often say, most parables are driving at one central idea, one central big truth. But there are parables like this one that also give us some meaning and some detail in some of the other things that are mentioned here. So, for example, here we have the owner of a vineyard. The owner represents God, the Father. He owns this vineyard, and throughout the Old and New Testament, the imagery of a vineyard or a vine is oftentimes used for the nation of Israel. So the tenants are meant to be the Israelites. And so at harvest time, the owner of the vineyard sends a servant, which represents the Old Testament prophets, to get some fruit from his vineyard. To be honored as the Lord, as the owner of the vineyard. But what do the tenants do? They beat him up and they send him away empty handed. In fact, this happens three different times here. I don't think the three has significance with Old Testament prophets as much as it's just it happens over and over and over again. And we know that time and time again throughout the Old Testament, God sent prophets to his people to warn them. To turn them back to God. But over and over again, the people don't listen. In fact, they even mistreat the prophets. I think this whole parable is summarized well in the Old Testament. By 2 Chronicles 36, 15 and 16. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of God rose against his people, until there was no remedy. So what does the owner of the vineyard do? Verse 13, Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved Son, which has some overtures to what we just looked at with Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And They threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. So the owner of the vineyard, God the Father, sends his own son. Of course, God knows what will happen to his son, unlike the owner of the vineyard who is just kind of guessing here. But the sending of the son is meant to represent the ultimate that can be done by the vineyard owner. He sends his very own son. Or in the words of Isaiah 5, 4, what more was there to do for my vineyard, God says, that I have already done? But this time, instead of just wounding him like they had done to the previous messengers, the prophets kill him instead. Notice their words. This is his heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. Although they knew God, they did not honor God as God chose to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. They chose to trade the truth of God for a lie. Now you can see what's happening here. They kill the heir. And who's the one that's saying this parable? It's Jesus himself. Jesus is predicting yet again his own death. As just in just a matter of days, some perhaps of the very same people that were standing in front of Jesus would be the one shouting, crucify, crucify, as they killed the owner's son, as they killed the son of God. Well, Jesus is not done. He says, what will happen to those who have killed the owner's son? Look at the second part of verse 15. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Verse 16, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them, which is a subtle clue that something important is about to happen said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. What happens to those who have rejected the son of the owner of the vineyard? Jesus says the The owner will come and he will throw them out of the vineyard. He will destroy them and he will give the vineyard to others. This is a pretty clear condemnation against unbelieving Israel that Jesus gives. He's going to give the vineyard to others. And we see that and I think that was not... Missed by the crowd, because notice their response. They say, surely not. Like, they grasp what Jesus is saying, but they are misled by their false hope that just because they were Jews, just because they were genealogically children of Abraham, that they somehow would never be thrown out. We have Abraham as our father. Jesus brings this with such clarity When he demonstrates through this parable that it is about the reception of the Son of the owner of the vineyard, it's about the reception of the Son of God, that makes all the difference. Jew, Gentile, the same door of salvation. And Jesus responds to this by quoting from Psalm 18 very stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's clear that Jesus is that stone. He's rejected by so many. He's rejected by Israel, by and large. It doesn't mean that every Jew rejected Jesus. But as a people that Jesus has come to, they are rejecting him as their rightful king, and yet he has become the cornerstone. And cornerstone is the stone of significance. In in, in building trades of Jesus' day, it was, it was common for, stone, for buildings to be built out of stone. It was also fairly common for, for buildings to be hewn somewhere else off site and then the stones to be taken apart and hauled to the new location where they would be set up. And so the cornerstone would be marked. It would be the stone that would be set first. You get that stone right, then everything else was designed to build off that stone. You get that one stone wrong, you replace it with another stone, your entire structure is not going to hold up. And Jesus is saying, this is about me. All the way back in Psalm 118, this is about me. And I am rejected, but I am the cornerstone. And those who reject me, isn't it interesting that in chapter, or verse 6, these teachers are so concerned about being stoned by the crowd, and yet they will ultimately, in their rejection of Jesus, face being crushed by the Stone. And God is fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 8:14, which says that the Lord will be a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Like the farmers think that they are ridding themselves of the vineyard owner and his son, but in fact, they are only inviting their destruction. You see, Jesus is the cornerstone of God's new temple, and if he is rejected, there is no hope. But if he is received as the rightful king that he is, then he is the cornerstone on which all things are built, even our lives, even our eternity, our hopes, our dreams, our confidence. It all comes back to the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? He is, yes, the cornerstone that crushes all who, that who did not put their trust in him. But he's also the cornerstone of salvation and rescue for those who turn and trust in him by faith. And those who find mercy With the purity of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, and the identity of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. Our Father, we thank you as we so often do for your word, which is the truth. is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. Thank you that we are not left to wonder who you are and what you are like, but you have told us. You've revealed the pathway of salvation for us. And even here specifically, you have revealed the pathway of salvation by revealing the identity and the authority and the purity of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, I can't help but think that this passage is just continuing to, uh, is intended to continue to, to push us and motivate us and drive us back to worship Jesus Christ, our King, for who he is, for what he has done, for the authority that rightly he possesses. So Father, we thank you for your Son. We thank you for his obedience and for his work We thank you for his victory. We thank you, Father, for his present intercession on our behalf. I pray, Father, for the one who is in this room this morning who is not trusting in you, that you would be opening their eyes to turn and to trust even now, even in this moment perhaps, by faith to turn and repent, to turn away from unbelief and sin and trust in you through Jesus Christ, by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, would you please do that? Open blind eyes, as you have opened so many of ours. And I pray for all of us, Father, that on account of these verses, our worship of you, yes, our singing, but also just our lifestyle of worship would be richer and deeper because of the identity and the authority and the purity of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.